You're listening to What the History, a podcast where two nerds talk about some awesome, crazy, random stuff you probably don't remember learning about, but you're going to now. Hey, nerds! Welcome to episode three of What the History. Uh, first off, if you are with us today, uh, thank you so much for sticking it out the first couple of episodes. I know uh, Sarah and I both really appreciate you kind of letting us work out the kinks. Um, obviously, this is new for both of us, um, but we're just really grateful that you're here. We're grateful that so many of you have subscribed and left awesome reviews, and we're just really, really happy that people are enjoying it as much as we are. Um, so today we are going to get into a little bit more of a broad topic. I would say that um, when I was doing my research, a lot of this was, I mean, there's just so much on it and I'm sure Sarah is going to explain it better yeah. than I could, but we're going to kind of flip roles today. So Sarah's going to actually do more of the historical explanation and history behind it. Um, and I'm going to do a little bit more of like specifics and we're going to look a little bit more into maybe some conspiracy theories, but today's topic is the history of fairy tales. Yes. I'm going to shut up and I'm going to let Sarah go. <laughs> yeah. And I'll say that I felt like it's very apparent during this that Casey is the history person and I was like the humanity, <laughs> humanities sociology person because every fifth bullet point is like food for thought. Here's a question no one will ever be able to answer, but we should ponder it for an hour. So I love that. <laughs> it's definitely more of that side. I actually took a history of fairy tales class in undergrad and got I'm to like, jealous of that. I kept the books from it. So I got to like pull those out and use them like a nerd. And it was really fun. So the first section that we wanted to do sort of sounds easy, which is defining a fairy tale. Um, but it's not actually that easy to define what a fairy tale is. It means a lot of different things. But I thought a fun thing before I get into any official definitions is, Casey, I want to put you on the spot and ask you how oh, you would damn. define a fairy tale. Oh, shit. Now I it's feel hard. like now I, know what my, now I know what my students feel like, where it's like, <laughs> you know, you did the reading, but you're also like, did I really understand? Yeah. Reading? There okay, no so right as answer. a person... I know, I know. And that's what I hate the most about this question is I'm never going to be right. So I would say that it is twofold. First off, I feel like it's a story that has been passed down in one capacity or another, either in writing or like orally. But I would say that it is based on the idea of teaching people a lesson. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of more like, okay, why should we not treat people badly or like, why should we not be greedy? Or it's basically like a, a tale that's supposed to tell us that like, you shouldn't be a shitty person. And here's why, because yeah. these people were shitty and look at what happened to them. Yeah, that makes sense. And some of that yeah. definitely comes up. So the hardest thing about defining a fairy tale is that the idea is really entangled with the idea of oral folklore. So okay. stories passed down throughout all of history. And some people will kind of say fairy tales are just oral folklore that was eventually written down. And some people say they're completely separate. Probably the closest thing to a consensus is that fairy tales are a subset of oral folklore. So okay. they have that idea of being passed down and changed generation over generation, but there's a set of characteristics that make them unique. And one of those is actually the idea that it's episodic. So the way most fairy tales we think of are short stories that are published together in a collection. That format of a bunch of short stories is 
what they mean by episodic. So instead of a novel length piece, basically, there's some sort of shortness inherent in it. Also the idea that they tend to have more in-depth and complex characters than a traditional folktale. Uh, so they tend to just be a little bit more complicated than the stories you would hear kind of around the fire in ancient times. Okay, so if I'm understanding this correctly, there are examples where it's like, it's almost like this exists in the same world or the same realm. And it's just like a continuation of the same basic place. Yeah. And then these are stories within that place. Yeah, it was sort of born out of that tradition. Okay. And then what I did, because if we treated fairy tales as, well, they're kind of folklore, but someone wrote them down, then this would be a 10 hour long episode because going into the history of like oral folklore is probably an impossible task. Yeah. So I found a couple specific definitions that I used to help narrow it down for what we're talking about. So one of the definitions that's put forward a lot is that fairy tales have a known author. And that doesn't mean that the root story is known, but that there was a written version at some point that is known as the story. So there's some sort of defined author. Okay. What that so in order for it to be classified yes. as like a fairy tale. Okay. Yes. Sorry. I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, you're good. And this is me reading a bunch of different scholars who like all disagree. Right. So there's someone out there who is like, no, that's absolutely not what a fairy tale is, but I needed to come to some sort of common definition to be able to look at the history. So we're looking at things that are not novel length, things that are credited to an author at some point and things that have some element of magic. They used to call things like this wonder stories. So some element of like awe and reverence and magical abilities that we don't have in this world. So like there has to be some sort of element of, I guess, like fantasy in the sense that like there's something going on that is not of this world. Exactly. And sometimes okay. that's talking animals and sometimes it's a fairy or My a... Fave. Right. Sometimes it's a fairy or a magician or something like that, but there's usually some element of wonder in it. The other thing that defining it this way means, and I would argue that our societal understanding of fairy tale is based on, is it's basically is saying there's a European origin. And that is mm. not true of most of the mm. stories that we'll talk about. And I know Casey yeah. will get into where they came from. Yeah. Any fairy tale you can Talk think of because is not originally from Europe, but that is mm -hmm. where they were first written down. And yeah. that is where the concept of a fairy tale, that genre, originated. It was first yeah. used in 1697 in France. Um, and it was frustrating because, like, even in finding my research, I was like, fuck, I don't want to keep looking at France. Like, right. give me more about, like, China. Give me more about the Middle East. Like, it's very right. difficult because... I think also the whole idea of like written language mm -hmm. and because it's so Eurocentric and how we study history and we just focus so much on Europe. It's like, it makes a lot of sense that that's where most people think of fairy tales. And that's why it's like classified as a fairy tale coming from Europe. Right. And I would, mm -hmm. you know, what somebody thinks of if you say fairy tale probably has European roots, even the versions of the stories we know the best. And that's not to say that these stories are created by white European men that we're going to talk about. Right. right. In, in order to be able to define this, I had to sort of say, these are things that can officially be classified as fairy tales, mm -hmm. which means they were published under an author's name, which typically roots back to Europe. 
I'll mention where some of them may have heard the stories that I know you'll talk about the further history. I just wanted to give the clarification. There's probably a little bit of element of Eurocentricness here because it was the only way to narrow it down as a topic. Totally. I get that. Um, But I'll try and reference, you know, true origins of the stories where I can and address that. So when we talk about the origin of fairy tales, like I mentioned, because it's all rooted in this oral tradition, we can't really say here is the first time there was a fairy tale, right? Here's the first time like an early human told a story. There's no way to do that. So I'm focusing on the genre of fairy tales. And there's two main kind of academic theories about where fairy tales came from. So there's one theory that every common story roots back to one single instance of that story. So somebody, once upon a time, for lack of a better term, in Asia told a story and it just spread and spread and spread throughout the globe and changed as it spread. And that story is the single origin point. There's also a theory that the motifs are so universal in fairy tales that the same types of stories sprung up in different cultures just naturally because they make sense to everybody. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I think that if we're looking at fairy tales as like a lesson, because people are literally everywhere, like lessons across humanity are across humanity. Like you're going to be able to talk about greedy people in Germany the same way you would greedy people in China or something like that. Which side note, every time stuff I read, which is not, that old, right? A lot of it's from the late 1900s. It's talking about where stories came from. It says the word oriental like every time. I was like, you can't just say oriental story. Like, yeah, no. When did that word go out of fashion to say? I don't know, but apparently not like the 80s or whenever I was reading this from. That actually doesn't surprise me though. I could see people not being particularly like aware of how they're using language. Yeah. Probably up until like the 90s even. Yeah, true. So, so that that's was fair. A, that okay. was a fun adventure in my research. Ugh, people suck. Yep. There's also kind of this myth that fairy tales are an inherently feminine idea. A lot of people will say they originated with women and that women were the first people to tell these stories. We really have no way of knowing that because we can't trace these stories far back enough to get to their actual roots in folklore. So for the most part, we have no way of knowing who it is that created these stories because they're aimed at children and because they have to do with magic and things that eventually were deemed as sort of silly and fanciful, they became associated with women because mm-hmm. women, of course, are silly and fanciful. <laughs> That's um, all we do, right? We're just silly. Yeah. And we just make shit up. We're just thinking so. about fairies who can bring us dresses all day. Although, actually, I did read something, too, that said that a lot of women started to turn fairy tales kind of almost upside down and yeah. make them women empowerment, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, they... I they did. And women are definitely involved in parts of the story. But it's interesting. There's this perception that women kind of invented fairy tales when really, mm. when I go through the known history, every named person is a man because men yeah. are the people who had publishing power. Right? Yes. A woman could not write and publish a book in a right. lot of these scenarios. So infuriating. So we're going to go through kind of the main players in the history of this idea of fairy tales, but none of them will be women. Yeah. <laughs> And they'll all be white dudes, right? Oh, I'm sure, yeah. Because I think your list is similar to the list that I kept seeing, so... Yeah, there's a handful of guys that are considered kind of like the founding fathers of fairy tales. And so we'll start with... I'm not going to say these names right. They're like (laughs) white men names, so I don't really feel that bad. (laughs) 
so fair. <laughs> <laughs> What's it? so the first guy is Giovanni Francesco Straparola, um, and he's really the main like original guy that people credit fairy tales with. So he lived during the Renaissance in Venice. That's really, cool. that's all we know about him as a person. Mm. We don't have any clue about his life before this. Right. But he lived in Venice and Venice was a port city. And so that meant that he had access to people from other countries in a way no one else really did at the time. People that were yeah. trading came to the port cities and you couldn't just, you know, get on Twitter and talk to someone in Korea. Like, this was <laughs> the only way you got that information was seeing them. And right. so he probably heard two things. He probably heard a lot of stories that other people knew and shared just folklore and traditions and things like that. Mm -hmm. But what he would have also heard a lot of was news that traveled from these other countries. Again, there's not newspapers or anything where they're learning what happened overseas today. Right. And like a bunch of like a bunch of jabronis like show up at a market and they're like, yo, you hear what happened in China? And like, that's pretty much right. Twitter. And they're like, we had a whole war and like, you had no yeah. clue it happened. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh shit, is that why you guys like dipped out for five years? That sucks, man. Yeah. Exactly. And people yeah. <laughs> had nothing to do except get this news from random people at the port city. And so he collected these stories and over time he ended up publishing a book that translates to The Pleasant Nights in about 1551. That sounds like a porno. Okay, I'm it done. It does. There's some belief it ties <laughs> back to the Thousand and One Nights, the original Arabian Tales. And that's where he's okay. getting this idea of knights from. And that's that does come into it. So instead of being set into separate stories, like we see a lot of anthologies would be, it was set into individual knights. So it had to have had some sort of root in this idea that he probably heard about the Thousand and One Nights. Okay. But The Pleasant Nights, it has about 75 short stories in it. And it's the first published set of fairy tales as we know them or would define them today. And what year was this? 1551. Okay. Gotcha. So it contains something similar to what we now know as Puss in Boots is the most recognizable story in it. Oh, my God. Right. Good old Puss in Boots, who I was like, yeah. from, I was like from Shrek, that one. <laughs> I'm literally just picturing Antonio Banderas. <laughs> I, know. So. I know it's a whole fairy tale, but I'm like Shrek, that one. Yeah, that's the only time I have ever seen Puss in Boots anywhere relevant. And yeah. it was phenomenal the way they incorporated him was oh. unbelievable yeah it's iconic and so that's the, the most notable story in there there is actually a whole little speculation theory here that he didn't write these stories there's a dedication in one of the copies of this book where he seems to credit someone else with writing some of them but there's some translation arguments about that so we've kind of done the the shakespeare thing here i don't mm -hmm. know if he wrote these or someone else wrote them but this is right the and he just like come Piled them. Yeah, this yeah. is the guy credited with them. And at this point, to me, they're long dead. Shakespeare or Straparola is an entity that wrote these, mm -hmm. whether the person did or not. And so right. he, he is still considered the founding father of the fairy tale. And he's also credited there with the infusion of what they call the rise plot. So this is some of the first times we see the idea of somebody poor ending up someone rich by the end of the story. Okay. That's known as the rise plot. So we'll talk about like class infusion a little, but some of the first times we see that come in this version of the stories. So then after him, there's a man named, I don't even know, Guillaume Batista. Yeah, that's how I kind of looked at it too. Yeah, Guillaume Batista Basile. Yes. And 
So he also lived in Venice. We know a little bit more about him. He grew up fairly middle class and he became a soldier and that's how he ended up in Venice. He had a bunch of different jobs throughout his life. He ended up dying with the title of count. So he, oh, had, cool. he had managed to ascend somewhat in society. He, he worked with the king at the time to build statues based on Aesop's fables. And he was like a French appointed academic kind of committee person for the country. So he became more important throughout his life. But he was primarily a writer, so he published poems and other types of writings. But then I feel like it would have been really shitty to be a writer in the Renaissance, just in the sense that there's the market is so flooded. True. That it's like, oh, we got another writer. You know what I mean? It's like you go, I don't know if it's what the scene is like in Atlanta, but I feel like in New York, if you're like, oh, what do you do? It's like, I'm an actor. It's like, of course you fucking are. Like, who is like it's yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, you're an artist in the Renaissance. Cool. <laughs> Ever heard of Michelangelo? And everyone's like, fuck that guy, man. Oh, I'm not man. him. Yeah. <laughs> but he did manage in 1634. He published The Tale of Tales. And it's alternatively known as Entertainment for Little Ones are the translations of the titles of this book. And okay. Th- these versions actually didn't become super popular and they weren't as well known as the Straparola ones until later when the Grimm's begin to use this as a reference is when he comes back around. But this version of the book has the oldest written versions of quite a few things. So like Rapunzel, Hansel and Gretel, and Cinderella have the oldest writ- written version. So like Cinderella, I know you'll talk about, dates back way further than this, but mm-hmm. that's through the oral tradition. So I, I right. literally have here, so by the written version, we do mean the white version. Yes, Yes. So this is the first white version of those things. Right. <laughs> exactly. Oh, basically. And again, he seemed to have infused a lot of social commentary into the tales, talking a lot about lower class or what they would call peasant characters and themes of change in status, which probably reflects his own life, that he seems to have had some upward mobility. And that came into the way he told these stories. Yeah, I was actually going to say that before, that like mm-hmm. he ended his life as a count, right, with right. the title of count. So, and he was almost like the father of or the first time that we see a rise up story right he's he's like a real rags to riches and so that seems to be apparent in his versions of these stories so some of the italian stories end up becoming popular in france they travel there among a group of women and i super don't know how to pronounce this it yeah it means the preciousness it's like precious preciousness I keep wanting to say preciosus. <laughs> you could just do like what Gollum does and be like, oh, precious. you know what I mean? Like, you could yes. definitely just do that. <laughs> yes. We're going to call them the preciousness because that was the translation I saw. Yeah. And it was basically a group of women who got together to laugh and joke and talk about equality and society in a way they weren't really allowed to in France at the time. Okay. So they were known to be, you know, witty and intellectual. And there was this particular salon they gathered in to kind of escape all the political chaos and escape some of the constraints that put were put on them at the time. Do, do you have a date, like a timeline for this? Like what I do, let me check time period. I do because I'm wondering if it lines up with the salons that you found in the Enlightenment period. Because I know France was like really big for that, and you would have these like wealthy-ish women that would like invite all of these like thinkers to their house to yeah. just yeah. So it was about it was about the 1650s. Okay, so it's like the early stages of that. Okay, that's really cool. Yeah. So it was 
they seem like they were really badass and they would play different games and kind of ways of showing off their intelligence. And one of the things they would do was recite folk tales or fairy tales. And they would get up there and tell the story and they would make changes and do wordplay as kind of a way to show off. But so this is somewhere you see women taking a little bit of control of the stories. So for example, these women who tended to be better off financially, they would often make the characters in the stories poor and they would often infuse tiny bits of what would be at the time feminist undertone, right? So women okay. escaping controlling situations and things like that. Mm -hmm. They're probably not mm -hmm. what we would call feminist today, but at the time it was a little bit radical that they yeah. would go in here and put their own spin on the story. Yeah, absolutely. And so these are, are thought to be an influence on future written versions, even though they're credited to men for the most part. Um, a lot of people believe that these women had a say in where the stories ended up. And this is right around the time that you have Charles Perrault. Um, I literally wrote... I saw this dude's name yes. every fucking place I saw, looked. Any place I looked, I was like, yep. here he is. Yeah, he's, he's the big one. He's the first one people probably know before you get to the Italian men. And I literally wrote, Charles Perrault was a fancy man because I didn't feel like writing down all of his, like, his parents were rich and he went to school and he did, he was fancy and rich. That's all you need to know. Was a fancy man. A fancy man. That's I what, love that so much. Status in society. He was fancy. I want that on a t-shirt. <laughs> like, I'm a fancy man. man. Like, I just love that so much. <laughs> <laughs> it seemed to like get the point across. Yeah. And so he worked really hard all his life, though, and got forced to retire at 65, which I don't know. I thought that was when you were supposed to retire, but they kept I mean, I didn't even know people really lived till 65 then. I guess it's not the Middle Ages anymore. So people yeah. aren't just like dropping down at 30, but still. Right. But so they forced him to retire. And I guess at like 65 years old, he said, fine, I will devote my life to my children. Seems late for that. But I was going to say, how old were his kids? Like not, 40? Okay, dad, right. I've got my own kids right. now. <laughs> I think he missed the boat on that. But they made him retire. Yeah. So he was like, my life is about the children now. And okay. within a few years, he published Tales of a Mother Goose, which I was actually really upset to learn Mother mm. Goose was a man. Yeah, that's <laughs> um, pretty shitty. Which there is some concept of Mother Goose that had to do with women. I don't care. Mother Goose was a woman. Yeah. I don't like that. But so he published Tales of a Mother Goose and they were stories based on European popular tales. Um, and this is really considered the foundation of most of the fairy tales as we know them today. Partially that's because it came out in the same year that we see the word fairy tale used for the first time. So in 1697, we see the word fairy tale written down and that's the same okay. year these books came out. So I think the concepts get entangled with each other because of that right he does reference some of the things that the, the preciousness women were saying so he's just completely like stealing their thunder yeah of course because it's he's taking he so what's interesting is like there's such a gendered like role and like he oh, couldn't yeah. just be father goose like i was literally no. i know that sounds stupid but no, like it couldn't right. be telling stories it has to be a like Mother a lady goose. yep Yes. And I think that's so interesting because it's like, it's not men's job to tell these stories. It's women's. And then right. it's like taking these ideas or these stories that women have come up with. And because they don't have the autonomy to take control of their stories like that, he's just sort of taking and using it the way I find most European white men did and mm -hmm. continue to do. Yep. Yeah. 
Yep, that was this guy. And his stories, a lot of them, if I told you, you know, tell me the plot points of Cinderella or Sleeping Beauty or some of those classics, his yep. are going to be the closest to them out of the different mm-hmm. versions we'll talk about. They're okay. sort of the, the template for a lot of what we know today. Yeah. And what's interesting is he's the first person to actually really blatantly put in lessons and morals. So most of the stories have some sort of moral behind them because stories tend to, but right. he puts in kind of explicit warnings. So his version of Little Red Riding Hood for example, ends with this really explicit prose basically telling women not to talk to strange men, which is fair. Jesus, that's totally fair. But it's still so shitty because I don't need a white man telling me this. Yeah, and it has a whole thing that's basically like (laughs) men or wolves don't do that. But also, if that's the narrative, like obviously you are the fucking problem. It's not women talking to strangers. It's how about we just don't make wolves Wolves. crazy there's men you would think but instead he's like just don't talk to them stay on your path and so he gets a lot more blatant about that and he's also a lot more detailed and adds a lot more like grandeur to his stories which is probably just because he's exposed to it throughout his life whereas some of the others weren't he lived a a fairly upper class life so he had references he could put in that other people might not have okay so for about a hundred years these are kind of the the big popular versions of fairy tales are the charles perot versions And in the late 1700s, um, you have the Brothers Grimm. So their names were Jacob and Wilhelm, are their actual names. Mm -hmm. And they were highly academic men. So they they were like the professional student, professor type guys. Mm -hmm. And they were actually really interested in the idea of national identities. Later goes badly for Germans, but... (laughs) Yeah, this is when nationalism starts to... Yeah. This is the 1700s? This is the late 1700s. Yeah, so at this point, historically, we start to see a lot more influence on, like... um, there's still a lot of conflict, especially in Germany and France. Like they're constantly at odds with each other. And so there's a, like a really big swing into being proud of where you're from, identifying Mm -hmm. your culture and your nation. And then that's going to swing even further into like the 1900s with shit like imperialism. Right. So, and so that's actually what they're interested in. They're not like story people. They're very interested in the idea of a German national identity. And they saw fairy tales as a form of community. So something very specific, to your culture. Okay. And so when they started finding some of these written stories or hearing stories told, they basically turned them into German specific tale in their opinion. Mm. They tried to make That's why you picture like these little blonde and like blonde haired blue eyed Hansel and Gretel. Right. And even some of the names, you know, Hansel and Gretel are not their names in every version of the story. Those are very German names. So, so German. (laughs) And so their goal, their stated goal is essentially to take a lot of these unwritten stories and preserve them for the German culture. Some people argue that that's basically against the point of a fairy tale is to preserve them in one form when the idea is to change. to be fluid. Exactly. But they basically insisted these are very German specific stories and we need to preserve them in a German format, basically. So they did that with a lot of oral stories. They also went back and found old copies of some of the other books we've talked about to adapt those okay. stories. Okay. And they continued adding until they died. So they, they would just keep adding whatever they found. Wow. And they also added some more brutal elements to the stories. So you hear a lot of things yeah. like, oh, you know, in the original story, Cinderella cuts her foot off or whatever. Yes. That comes from a lot of these Grimm's fairy tales, which I guess one could argue maybe is the German part. I don't know. But they... Yeah, like the brutality of it. Right. They got a little <laughs> yeah. harsh in it. Yeah. 
And so then the last person we'll talk about um, doesn't actually show up on a lot of the historical timelines I looked at, but I wanted to make sure we talked about Hans Christian Andersen. Yes. So in 1835, Hans Christian Andersen is a Danish author, and he published a set of fairy tales known as Fairy Tales Told for Children. And I actually think this naming is interesting because we've seen it a few times with entertainment for little ones, fairy tales for children. There's kind of a belief or lore that you know, fairy tales weren't meant for children. They're scary and they were meant for adults. But when right. you look at the names of these books, they very clearly were meant for children. This was called yeah. Fairy Tales Told for Children. Right. And did they still contain violent elements? Some of them. Even if they were for children? Yeah, yeah. some of them did. Because I could see it being like a fear tactic. Right. Like, if you're greedy like Cinderella's stepsisters, your toe's going to get cut off. Exactly. And people are like, fuck, I don't yep, want to do I'm that. Good. I'm not going to be greedy. Yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting with Hans Christian Andersen is his book doesn't really have iterations on these other stories. So like everyone we've talked about so far has some version of Cinderella and some version of Beauty and the Beast, etc. Okay. He mm-hmm. has kind of newer ones that are coming from different folklore. So even though he's in Europe, this mm-hmm. is where we see the Little Mermaid, Thumbelina, the Princess and the Pea, the Snow Queen. Thumb- Thumbelina, holy shit. Thumbelina. Have you ever seen them? I have to yes. go off on a tangent for three oh my seconds. God. I love Have Thumbelina. you seen the movie? Thumb- oh my God. That movie is so good. <laughs> I no. can't believe. It's great. And I, it's aged perfectly. Yeah. I mean, it's really. I want to go watch it. It's astounding. My One of my best friends and I have this like inside joke where he like, when the prince is like talking about like riding his bumble, we're like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, Prince whatever is just like asking girls to ride his bumble. Like, are you kidding me oh right now? God. So now I just I've needed to say that. No, I know, but I, I still love it. I still don't feel anything about it. And then the, the toads. Oh my God. Yeah. I got to rewatch this I, movie. I know. I, I really want to go watch it now. Thank you to everyone who's listening to let it like to just let me fucking go for three seconds. Okay, I'm done. We're sponsored by the 1994 film Thumbelina. Uh. <laughs> it's a little outdated, but it's fine. Um, you know, wait, let me be your wings. Oh my god, oh, I'm gonna yes. to make that our wedding song, no oh, doubt. Yes, do it. But so some of these originate with him. So we get some new stories from Hans Christian Andersen, which I'm my weird tangent is the funniest thing to me is the movie Frozen. I assume you've seen Frozen. Yes. So Frozen is based on the Snow Queen, which appears in Hans Christian Andersen's book. Mm -hmm. So the characters are named Hans, Kristoff, Anna and Sven. What? Hans Christian Andersen. (laughs) I just messed that up. Are you serious? Yes, that's Hans, Kristoff, Anna, Sven. Hans, Kristoff, Anna, Sven. Holy shit, that's so cool. Yeah, so that's just my favorite weird fun fact that has to do kind of with Hans Christian Andersen. I literally love that so much because I honestly am not going to lie to anybody here and anybody who's listening, that's my friend, will be like, you're a fucking liar if you say otherwise. I love Frozen. I love Frozen too. I identify with Princess Anna in every capacity. She is a two Enneagram, so I just feel like I am also two Enneagram, and we are just the same person. I thought I was a two for a long time, and I've recently discovered I'm a seven, but we're having some some shifts there. Yeah. Well, apparently you're supposed to, like, keep investigating your Enneagram. Interesting that it changes. Yeah, it can change, or you might think you're something, but you should really try to learn about all of them because you might realize that you are more something else, which I think is interesting. Yeah, I think that's basically what happened to me. 
Yeah. Anyway, so another thing is that when Hans Christian Andersen's came out, it was really unpopular. People fucking hated this book and they thought it was really like irreverent. So they weren't even necessarily concerned about the violent elements. Right. Um, which they are like the little mermaid Ariel like kills herself at the end. Oh my um, God. It's so depressing. Right. Yeah. People weren't worried about that. They thought they weren't educational enough that they were just kind of like fun stories or fanciful and they weren't teaching anyone anything. And okay. they got kind of disregarded and not shared with children who was the intended audience. But obviously okay. the joke is on them. They're pretty popular now. Yeah, definitely. And so those are the main kind of texts that are the basis of a current fairy tale. A little bit into the 1900s, you start to see some interesting history where we were talking before about nationalism. And in Germany, you actually see them start to use fairy tales as a kind of blatant political tool. And oh, you, yeah. because the Grimm stories are considered German cultural institutions, they take those. And a lot of them initially are used by pacifists who are mm. against war to try and like get out messages about being nice. Um, right. But then they start getting more nationalist and undertone. And eventually the Nazis use them for as a vehicle for disseminating information. So you see, I was going to say, I think it also becomes like they become anti-Semitic. Yeah. They, and a lot of the, the descriptions of mm -hmm. like villainous characters or like, you know, yeah, um, evil crooked nose. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Like witches, like witches were not supposedly anything. And then they started to become very specifically like Jewish women exactly. that like, like stereotypical anti-Semitic Jewish women interpretations that were, would then identify like children would then kind of make connections like that. I mean, yeah, that's a whole, I totally know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And they use it as a way to be like, Oh, here's just a book for children, but it's clearly right. not. Um, and then what happens is after the world wars, especially in the United States, there's kind of a growing concern over exposing children to the violent and brutal parts. So where children were reading the original versions of these stories that are kind of graphic, there starts to be this idea that children shouldn't be exposed to war and violence. And that's when you start to get retellings of them that are pretty sanitized, more like we know today. And that goes hand in hand with as education becomes more formalized and more centralized, so there's curriculums everybody has to follow, that's how we really start developing a canon of the fairy tales that we know today and why some end up super well-known and everybody knows Snow White, but no one's ever heard of, you know, Bluebeard or whatever. Um, yeah, Bluebeard super brutal he's uh, i was seeing i was look was looking at something about it and i was like i don't know if i'm gonna focus on this one because not a lot of people right. know it but it's like reads like a serial killer true crime story oh, it, it super is and that's there's no way to yeah. really sanitize that so that didn't become okay here's the books we'll give the children because they right. were trying to focus on the nicer ones <laughs> read the story about bluebeard who was a serial killer pirate like <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and they get basically disseminated to the point where fairy tales are kind of a cultural institution at this point. I always think yeah. it's really interesting when we know what something is, but basically cannot easily define it, which is okay. what happens with fairy tales, right? We all know what a fairy tale is. But it was really right. hard when I asked you to tell me what a fairy tale was. Yeah, because there's so many ways that you can interpret it. Right. And that's sort of it's reached a point where it's like so pervasive in the culture that it has an unspoken meaning. Oh, wow. 
And so that's that's interesting how we got to that point, basically. Yeah. So that's yeah. my my history of fairy tales. Um, I know Casey, you're going to talk about a couple of different things, and then I'll talk about modern fairy tales. Yeah. So um, when I was doing research, I came across a lot of stuff just in looking at major examples. And I mean, if if I were to ask you, okay, name me five fairy tales, you probably could without like batting an eye. But one of the things that I thought was more important, at least focusing on this episode, was looking more at what is the origin point mm-hmm. for these? Um, because like you said, once you hit the 15, 1600s, it's very whitewashed in the sense that it seems like Europeans came up with these stories. But in actuality, the majority of the tales that I looked at were in existence th- literally thousands of years before they even came into contact with Europeans. Yep. Um, so a lot of times they look a little bit differently. So I'm going to share just a few that I thought were super interesting because I thought they were more reflective of other cultures. Uh, and they say a lot more about those cultures than I think the European one does. I, uh, this is like, I don't, I'm like stumbling on my words here, but I think if you look at the stories where they come from shows a lot about how they believed things and how they interpreted things similar to the way Europeans did. So you see like a damsel in distress in a lot of cases in European culture, but in like a Middle Eastern culture, women actually had a lot more autonomy, especially in the golden age of Islam. So their stories are more reflective of that. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, um, yeah. So the first one uh, is Sleeping Beauty. So we all know the story of Sleeping Beauty. Um, you might hear her be called Talia, Little Briar Rose, Rosamond, uh, Situkan, or Aurora, because these are all different names for Sleeping Beauty told in multiple cultures and histories. So the myth of something called Brynhild, or it's like Brunhild, is actually a, like a Norse myth. And Brynhild was supposedly like a Valkyrie and something or something like it. And she was imprisoned in a remote castle behind a wall of shields. And she was doomed to sleep there in a ring of fire until a man came along and rescues and marries her. So this is like the first time that we really see a European take on it. But the first like known recorded European version, like meaning recorded that it was in some semblance like written down, yeah. um, at least in a storybook or just in some type of writing was something called, I'm going to totally butcher this too, Persephorest. So in 1330 to 1334, something called the Persephorest Tale was shared. And in this tale, a princess named, um, oh my God, Zelandine, Zella, Zelandine falls in love with a man named Troilus and her father sends him to perform all in love with a man named Troilus. Never, ever in the history of the world. Any of our listeners named Troilus. (laughs) And if your name is Troilus, please email us at wthistorypodcast at gmail.com because we have some conversation that we need to have. Um, The history of Troilus's episode. Yeah. I need to know your entire family history. (laughs) So Troilus uh, is sent to perform all of these tasks to prove himself worthy of her. And while he's gone, Zelandine falls into this enchanted sleep. Some of the stories go that a goddess was jealous of her beauty and like goddesses will enchanted her to fall asleep and never wake up. So this is like trigger warning. There's some really fucked up shit in the Sleeping Beauty story. So I just kind of want to give a heads up if people are like not comfortable with some of the stuff to just like skip ahead probably like a minute or two. Um, So Troilus finds her and impregnates her while she's sleeping. Um, Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's another version of that in the Italian, the Talia story, which is 
kinds of fucked up. Um, so Zelandine g- gives birth to a child and I guess like a piece of flax was caught in her finger and the child draws from her finger the flax and then she like wakes up and I guess Troilus left her pregnant and she woke up and she's like, oh my God, I'm, I just had a baby and oh, here's a ring that Troilus left me and he must be the father. And so he then like returns to marry her. So yeah, so we know the tale of Sleeping Beauty is actually pretty straightforward, but I thought it was interesting because in Europe, it did start to sort of shift a little bit. Whereas we have a king who's super protective of his beautiful daughter, who's a princess, for whatever reason, he basically gets, uh, she gets cursed by an evil fairy. And the evil fairy says that she's going to die when she's pricked by a spindle. And a good fairy comes in, she's like, no, 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 she's not going to die, but she's going to fall asleep for 100 years. So 16 years later, the father, the king and queen, like, leave the palace for some reason and the princess is wandering around the castle and she comes across this old lady with a spindle she pricks her finger the old lady freaks out and she's like oh my god i killed her but she's not dead she's just sleeping so the good fairy feels really bad because she's like oh shit sleeping beauty is gonna wake up and like everyone's gonna be dead and it's gonna be a hundred years later so i'm probably gonna just make it easier for her and she enchants everybody in the palace that they all fall asleep for a hundred years too once a century has elapsed this is what i thought was really interesting because i mean everybody could recite sleeping beauty but it's really this is where it starts to get super different So after the century has elapsed, another king has taken over like the power because obviously her own father wasn't in the palace to be enchanted to sleep. So basically he died at some point and Mm -hmm. another king took over. The prince heard tales of this palace where the princess slept and he became super interested in finding it. So I have a question. Yeah, go. My understanding (laughs) of monarchies is that the prince would be a descendant of her father. So that's what I would think. But I'm thinking that this was kind of in a time where there was a lot of turmoil and you don't necessarily have the same ruling families in power for long periods of time. Okay, I accept that. So that's probably what this is. It was basically like, if you have the most power and the most weaponry and the most money, you're probably going to become the king. So that's kind of how I saw this. And it's also been a hundred years. Like a lot of shit can happen in a hundred years. So the prince cuts a path to the palace. He finds her sleeping and he falls to his knees at the sight of her beauty. This is the craziest. Well, actually, it's not the craziest part. But (laughs) as he's falling to his knees in just complete shock of how stunning she is, the spell ends. Not because he kissed her, just because it was like, oh, and that's 100 years, everybody. We're done here. Let's wrap this up. And so timing. Yes, that's exactly it. He has impeccable timing. So the princess wakes up, sees the prince. She falls in love with him. And they spend the whole like night talking and like nothing happens. Mm -hmm. They just are like, oh, like we're getting to know each other and you're great and whatever. So the servants and animals, everyone wakes up by the that the good fairy had like put to sleep for 100 years. And the prince and princess live happily together. They have two children. They don't get married, but they're living in this palace in this like total bliss and yeah that's super progressive but i think it's because and this is like where it starts to get really fucking weird so he names so they have two children a daughter and a son that they call morning and day so morning is the daughter that's and day is the sun right now though like you know if kim kardashian has twins i (laughs) i know i was thinking these are either super hippie names or super hipster names like trendy whatever names So the prince returns to his parents after an extended period of time. um, And he doesn't say anything about the princess that he's like in love with or his kids Mm -hmm. because his mother, the queen is part ogress, which means that she's like part ogre. Yeah. 
Like Fiona. And, and yes, and that's exactly what I was thinking. And so there's rumors that she wants to eat people. So the prince is like, now's not a good time to like tell her that I have two young children and a woman that I love. Okay. So to make a long story short, the king dies, the prince becomes a king as normal, and he brings his wife publicly to the court and like marries her and whatever. But shortly after this, he has to go to war with an with like an emperor in another place. And the queen mother sends Sleeping Beauty away to the country and tells the cook, Okay, I want you to kill my granddaughter and my grandson and I want to eat them. So the cook is like, Well, this seems really kind of fucked up. Like, I don't remember this being in my contract. So <laughs> he <laughs> so he instead slaughters a lamb and serves it to the queen and he hides the daughter. And then he does this again. So the cook is de- like the woman, the queen demands that the cook cook the, the little boy. And so he slaughters a baby goat and feeds that to the queen mother. And then the queen mother's like, Oh, my hunger's insatiable. I need something else. So she's like, kill sleeping beauty. And like, I want to eat her too. So sleeping beauty is like laying in her chambers, like fast asleep. And the cook comes in and he's like, well, how am I going to serve? Like, she's going to know that this is not a grown woman. Like if I try to kill another animal, so I have to kill her. So he goes to kill sleeping beauty and sleeping beauty wakes up and she's like, you can kill me. I'd rather be dead than sitting here suffering without my children. And the cook is like, oh my God, I'm so heartbroken. So he like saves her life and like cooks a flank of steak or some shit and the queen mother finds out and she fills this like bathtub with snakes and toads and she's about to like throw sleeping beauty and her two children into the tub when the king who's sleeping beauty's husband shows up and he's like what the fuck mom like we talked about this you can't do this and so i guess like the ogreish queen is like devastated that her son is not gonna like let her kill and eat her daughter-in-law and ch- grandchildren, right? And so she like throws herself and into the And then the queen tub. had Princess Diana's car driven off the road, I think is how yes. it ends. It's, <laughs> that's exactly, I cannot wait to talk about those. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. That's basically it. So there's a lot of tropes in classic fairy tales of classic fairy tales in Sleeping Beauty. You've got a beautiful princess, an evil stepmother figure. Uh, You have a handsome prince. You've got good and evil with a good fairy and a bad fairy. You have the trifecta, which is like the number three shows up in fairy tales Mm -hmm. all the time. Um, So you have the three, you know, like the Sleeping Beauty day and morning. I don't know how I'm forgetting their names. It's fucking morning and day like those are literally words that are in my everyday vocabulary children afternoon and evening right (laughs) yes exactly so that that's like the story that we sort of know obviously in more modern times that last part is just kind of like really off at a whole other level but in the golden age of islam there's actually a story that was told between the 9th and 13th centuries and it was finally written down in the 15th century so like 1400s which may makes it the oldest recorded version mm-hmm. of Sleeping Beauty. So it's actually called The Ninth Captain's Tale. And in this story, there's a 10-year-old girl named uh, Situ Khan. So Situ Khan is incredibly kind and beautiful. And her mother had been unable to conceive children. So she'd prayed to Allah and she said that she wanted a child, even if that child was allergic to flax. And flax is like a really big part of like that culture. And so she was like, even if my child is imperfect, I just want to be able to have a child. And so she gets pregnant. She has Situ Khan and 10 year old Situ Khan is like hanging out her window one day as 10 year old children do. And, um, the son of the Sultan sees her and he's like, Oh my God, she's beautiful. And I love her. 
I don't know how old the son of the Sultan is. So if that was a question, I have no answer for you. But she is feel better if we say like 11. Yes, I'm going to say he's 11. So the Sultan's son goes home and he tells his parents and they're like, all right, well, we'll take care of this for you. They send an older woman to Situ Khan's home. And the woman is like, oh, you're so beautiful and wonderful. But you would be an even more beautiful and wonderful girl if you learned how to spin flax. And then she just like dips out. So I think it's more like we want to make sure that you're useful. And so Situ Khan begs her mother. She's like, this like old lady told me that I should be able to like spin flax. And her mother's like, you're allergic. Like you will die if you get hurt by this or you ingest it or whatever. And Situ Khan's like, please, like I really want this. And the mother's like, okay, fine. So she caves and lets her. So Situ Khan is spinning flax and she's doing great. And everyone is like mystified at how like beautiful her little hands are as she's spinning this flax. And then a piece accidentally gets stuck underneath her fingernail and she passes out and everyone thinks that she's dead. So her parents are devastated. They go to bury her and the mysterious old woman that I couldn't figure out who the fuck she was, but this mysterious old woman comes back and she's like, Oh, you really shouldn't bury her. It would be such a pity to have such a beautiful little body covered in dirt. And I was like, that's fucking terrifying and awful. So the parents are like, yeah, that's a good point. So they decide to put her on this almost like pavilion and they build this like really beautiful, almost it's, kind of like similar to Snow White's glass whatchamacallit the fuck is that coffin oh, coffin yeah she's not like in a coffin she's just like on a bed in the middle of a pavilion with like curtains around her and whatever and so the woman returns to the sultan's son and he's and she's like hey just letting you know like Situ Khan is like here and dead and so the the sultan's son shows up and he's devastated and he takes her hand and he kisses it and he sees the flax under her nail and he's like that's fucking weird what's that and he pulls it out and she wakes up. But things start to get a little difficult for Situ Khan because he's totally besotted with her and she's besotted with him and they love each other. And he stays with her for 40 days and 40 nights. And then he goes to leave. And every time he goes to make his way home, he sees something beautiful that reminds him of Situ Khan. So he returns to her three times just to stare at her and admire her. But on the third time, and I couldn't figure out why, he comes back and he's like, sorry, I can't come back to you anymore. I can't be with you. I don't love you. And Suju Khan's like totally devastated. So she finds a ring and she makes a wish to be closer to the palace and to be stunningly beautiful. I don't know why she's not anymore, but I guess she's not anymore. Or he's like not interested in her type of beauty. So she gets that wish and the prince catches sight of this new neighbor and is like, yo, she's gorgeous. Who's that? And he sends his mom to go convince her to marry him. So Situ Khan's just sitting in her palace waiting for the prince to come or yeah, the sultan's son to come and the mother shows up and she's like, hey, what can I do to get you to marry my son? And Situ Khan's like, all right, well, this is what you have to do. He has to pretend and you all have to pretend like he's dead and you have to parade his body around the entire city and the entire like territory and then I will marry him. And so they do that. He like, pretends like he's dead and he's like laid on like a like not a pyre because that's where they burn you but right Um, you know he lays on like a whatever fucking cart i don't know they drag him around the whole city and he's like totally wrapped up in all of these different layers of um like burial cloth and at the very end he comes back to her palace that's like right next to his palace and she unwraps it And he's like, hey, like, what do you think? Do you think you'll marry me now? And she's like, yeah, because you really must love me to do something this fucked up. And then they get married. (laughs) It was a test. It was a test. So, like, I thought that was, like, really cool because as weird as it sounds, like, 
it's actually really empowering. She's like, yeah, you, you kind of like dicked me around for X period of time, 40 days and 40 nights. And then you just like told me that was it. So if you really love me, like you have to show me that you love me. Yeah. And I guess the way that she wanted to like have her love, his love proven was that, you know, I pretended to be dead. So <laughs> your turn. <laughs> so yeah. So the other version, this one is way less fun, uh, is the story of Talia. So Talia is the Italian sleeping beauty. Um, so she meets her fate in a very similar way as her predecessor. She gets a piece of flax like stuck under her fingernail. I hate when um, that and Yeah. Which actually freaks me out. I'm thinking of um, that like, uh, what is that? It's like the torture Oh, yeah, where they take your fingernails? It's like what I'm thinking of. Even though that's not it, it's like a splinter. But no, I'm like imagining like shoots of bamboo going underneath my fingernails or some shit. Yeah. So I guess a a group of astrologers had predicted that she would get this stuck under her fingernail. Her story gets really shitty. She only wakes up after, and this is again, trigger warning. So again, skip. Um, So a passing king rapes her in her sleep and she gives birth to his two children. And as one of her twin children are like, is like sucking on her finger. The, the baby pulls the flax out from under her fingernail and that wakes her up. And Talia then is like, okay, what the fuck happened? I have these two children. I have these two babies. And her tale kind of goes off into like a whole other direction where like the King's wife, um, of course, cause he's already married. She shows up and she finds out about her husband's like adultery and she basically steals Talia's children and feeds them to him. And then basically the King manages to save like Talia because he puts his wife to death and he finds out that like the children had survived. The cook had saved them. So we see like weird pieces of that other original quote unquote story. And then you have the grim Briar Rose one, which is weirdly enough, the most tame So again, we have the princess, she's given gifts of grace and beauty by these visiting fairies. And then the biggest difference is that it doesn't go into this whole like ogres, like mother-in-law slash queen slash like raped in your sleep and bearing children. Like none of that is in the grim story. Um, It's literally like the simplest happily ever after the king, the king, the prince finds her kisses her and like that's it they live happily ever after interesting yeah so that's um sleeping beauty the other one that i found that i thought was really worth talking about was cinderella so cinderella the earliest known version is actually from the first or early like first century bc or the early first century ad so we're talking like the 100s basically yep and this is a story of uh rhodopis Rhodopis, I think. So Rhodopis was a slave who was born in Greece. She was kidnapped by pirates and sold into Egyptian slavery. So the guy that bought her was supposedly very kind and he was absent most of the time, but like he treated her and all of his servants really well. But the other servants hated her and they basically like made fun of how ugly she was because all of their hair was straight and black and elegant and her hair was golden and curly and very coarse and thick. Um, their eyes were brown. Her eyes were green and bright. Their skin glowed because they were Egyptian and her skin was like 
pale and white and you know she'd burn in the sun really easily so basically everybody shit on uh rodopus she only had animals for friends she trained birds to eat out of her hand and a monkey to sit on her shoulder so like definitely some cinderella like gus gus and jock yeah. vibes or jack whatever the fuck the other guy's name is what's his name jock i, I feel bad is it jock because it's spelled the thinking of thumbelina thumbelina's bird friend yeah no it's gus gus and i think it's jock because it's like the j-a-c-q-u-e-s yeah, so it's Jacques. Jacques. Okay. All right, I feel a little better. Sorry, Jacques. You're one of my faves. I shouldn't have shit on you like that. It's okay. Okay. Uh, I hope he's listening. <laughs> Jacques, if you're listening, I'll please email you us. Want. <laughs> WT History Podcast. <laughs> okay, so, and, and in the evenings, she would, like, go and dance and sing for them at the end of the day to make all the animals happy, and she would do this along the river and um one evening she had more energy than normal and she's like singing and dancing and her i guess her the old man who owned her but i guess i don't know it seems weird because it never says that he owns her he just keeps her as a servant but i'm assuming that means he owns her but so he admires her dancing and he's like she's so beautiful and she's so happy when she dances i want to make sure that she doesn't go without shoes so he orders her a special pair of slippers Mm. the slippers are soft and they're like a rose red. So the servants are all teasing her now because they're super jealous of her kick-ass shoes. And uh, Rodopus is getting shit on even more. So a little while after that, the pharaoh decides to hold court in um, the city and all of the kingdoms invited. And Rodopus is not allowed to go because they all the servants like put their chores on her and so she like watches them leave and she's devastated and she goes and like takes care of all the chores that she's supposed to and as she is like cleaning something in the in the river the water splashes up and wets her slippers so she grabs them and she's really upset yeah and so she takes them off and places them in the sun to dry and as she's continuing with her chores the sky darkens and she looks up and this falcons like swoops down and snatches one of her slippers and flies away with it So Rodopus is in awe and she feels like it's the god Horus who has taken her shoe. And so she tucks the other slipper away in her shirt and she goes back to work, really not thinking anything of it, but wondering like what his appearance could mean. Meanwhile, the Pharaoh of Egypt is just hanging out bored as hell because he's having a bomb ass party. And like most royal men, they're like, this sucks. Um, And suddenly the Falcon swoops down and drops the rose color shoe onto his lap. Yeah, so the pharaoh is like, oh, wow, this is, like, really cool. And and again, he's like, this must be a sign from the god. So he decides that he's going to figure out, like, what this could mean. So the more he stares at it, the more he's like, well, this must mean that this god wants me to find the woman whose slipper this is. And so he basically has every servant girl try these, like, slippers on. And he searches through all the cities, and he doesn't find the owner um, and he begins to travel the Nile and then he comes across uh, Rodopus's house and his and her master. And when she hears the sounds of the gong, the trumpets blaring, she sees the silk sails. She's like afraid because she's like, oh, my God, what could this mean? And again, she's technically she's not Egyptian. So like she stands out, I guess, really specifically. Yeah. So uh, the other girls see the shoe and they pretend like it's not any of theirs. But they also pretend like it's not Rodopus's and they don't say anything because they're super envious of her. So they tried to force their feet into the slipper. It didn't work. And then um, the Pharaoh sees Rodopus hiding in the like bushes and asks her to try on the slipper. And she does. And because she's got such a tiny little foot, it fits perfectly. Um, and the Pharaoh knows that she is 
basically been decreed to be his wife and pronounces that she would be queen. All of the servant girls are super jealous, claiming that she was a slave and not even Egyptian, and her hair, her eyes, her skin, and clothes were unsuitable, and any of them would be a more fitting queen than she. And the pharaoh says, quote, she is the most Egyptian of all, for her eyes are as green as the Nile, her hair like papyrus, and her skin as pink as the lotus flower, quote. And then he swoops her away and marries her. So that's the earliest recorded Cinderella. Then we have the Chinese Cinderella. So there's a young girl named Yeshen. Uh, Yeshen story was like written down or told as of 850 AD. So she was the daughter of a cave chief who had two wives and her mother passed away and she was raised by basically her stepmother and her father's other wife. Uh, she was always given the worst jobs. The only friends that she had were fish um, with big gold eyes. And each day the fish came and, you know, she told them stories and she sang to them and she would feed them. And she basically shared what little food she had with her fish. And the stepmother heard her talking about the fish and like sharing her food with the fish. And then like one day just showed up and like stabbed her fish oh. in front of her and then like fed them to her. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was like fucked up. It's like, I can't even imagine like somebody doing that too. Like, first of all, I've watched one animal be killed one time in my life. And that was because Pepper, my dog killed a rabbit and it was the worst thing I've ever experienced. Yeah. So I can't imagine having like fish that I loved being like stabbed in front of me. No. So she's distraught. She learns of the fish's death, realizing what she ate. And as she's crying, she hears this voice and this like old man is like, Hey, you know, your fish's bones holds a powerful spirit. And when you need help, you have to kneel before the bones and tell them what your heart desires and don't waste their gift. So she retrieves the bones and she like holds on to them just in case time passes and the spring festival is nearing and she really wanted to be a part of it. And so her stepmother obviously wouldn't allow her uh, because she was afraid that Yeshen would be chosen for the prince other like over her own daughter. So the stepmother and the daughter leave for the festival. Yeshen is devastated. Uh, so she goes and gets the bones and she basically asks for a beautiful gown um, of blue with a cloak of kingfisher feathers draped around her shoulders um, and beautiful slippers. They were woven of golden threads on a, in a pattern of a scaled fish and the soles were made of solid gold. So she walked on them and felt lighter than air and she was warned to not lose the slippers. So she arrives at the festival and everyone's looking at her cause like she looks fucking great and she's worried that she's going to be found out. She dashes out of the village and leaves behind one of the golden slippers. And so when she gets home, she's dressed again in her rags. She speaks to the bones, but they're silent now. And she's really sad. So she puts one golden slipper in her bed straw. Um, at, after a time, a merchant found the lost slipper and seeing the value in the golden slipper, sold it to another merchant who then gave it to the king of the island. So the king is like, who owns this tiny, beautiful slipper? Again, it's a small shoe. So he is like, all right, go find the person who owns the slipper because she must be stunning. And so they go out and look all throughout and they find Yashen, who is like quietly looking at the tiny golden slipper that's like placed in the pavilion. Because she's like, oh, crap, I wasn't supposed to lose this. The old man told me not to. So she's actually trying to steal it. And the king's men rush and, like, arrest her. So she's taken to the king, who's furious. Um, he can't believe that anyone in rags would possibly own a golden slipper. And the more he looks at her face, the more he's struck by how beautiful she is. And then he returned her home, and she produces the other slipper. And they're like, oh, shit, you are the owner of the slipper. The king realizes that she's the one for him, because that's how you decide who loves yep. you, based on shoe size. <laughs> size matters, ladies. Have smaller feet. Yeah, have tiny feet. Uh, 
<laughs> tiny feet. I would literally have been a pariah oh in my society. God, I have fucking 10 wides. I like, wear an 11. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. They would have been like, mm, this looks like a man's shoe. Um, and so they married, live happily ever after. And then the stepmother and daughter were never allowed to visit her. And they were forced to continue to live in their cave until one day they were crushed to death in a shower of flying rocks. Okay. So that's Chinese Cinderella. Um, and so for the most part, like you said, the real first version of it in print was 1634. And then we start to see the French writer, Charles Perrault, who publishes it. And he puts in all like the magic and the pumpkin and the fairy godmother and right. the glass slipper. The brothers Grimm actually keep it a little bit more old school in that they keep it a gold slipper. They don't do like the whole glass thing. Mm-hmm. And then... That's because Charles Perrault is a fancy man. Yes, he is, because he is a fancy man. Exactly. And then, yeah, so basically he just sort of wanted it to be some people are arguing like, Oh, Peral wanted it to be like an ironic device. Other people are like, that's a more memorable thing than a gold shoe. But for the most part, that is the history of Cinderella and sleeping beauty. It's interesting. The Cinderella one feels like it was more consistent. Like if you go all the way back to a hundred or whatever, it's pretty much the same story. Whereas sleeping beauty just, also has a sleeping person. Yeah, absolutely. And and what's interesting is Cinderella definitely has a lot more of a, like in the old one um, with Rodopis, that's a lot more like cultural and racial, yeah. just like wealth. So there's a lot more like, you know, and, but what I thought was interesting was that because it's the Greeks, mm-hmm. it's still whitewashed. Yeah. And it's still, and I thought, and this like bothered me while I was reading it because it was still like a white girl getting swept away and being considered higher than people who were Egyptian, like Egyptian women. Yeah, that makes sense. So I thought that was kind of like, I don't know, that just sat weird with me. Yeah. But yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So then I started doing a little bit on modern fairy tales. And okay. I mean, basically... Modern fairy tales are Disney movies, is the actual 1,000%. answer. There, yeah. there are all sorts of other attempts at recreating them. There are dark versions. There are the Angela Carter books, which are really feminist versions of them. And what all, are those? Um, the Bloody Chamber. I should know this. The Bloody Chamber is an Angela Carter book that's awesome. They're like fairy tales written by a woman who was like, well, fuck this. Why is the woman always locked in a tower? And so some of them are kind of satirical of those and they're darker, but they're really good. But really, Disney movies are what we consider modern fairy tales. Yeah. The the princess movies are almost all based explicitly on either a Grimm or a Peral fairy tale. Most of them follow the Grimm stories and are just heavily sanitized. Right. Um, like like heavily sanitized. <laughs> no and like one... a musical number or five is added in. <laughs> right. Yes. Musical yes. made into cartoons. Like and Hammerstein Cinderella. Yes. AKA Brandy, Brandy. Cinderella, which yes. is the greatest looking version of Cinderella. Fight me, not no. you, just anyone. Right. If you have a problem, email us at WTH History. <laughs> just kidding. Yeah, Troyless. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you, Troyless. <laughs> um, but the Disney movies did take some of the common themes. So the ideas of class change, of like hope and magic, and those elements are present, which is probably why those are the things we most associate with fairy tales now. Yeah. It's basically kind of inextricable at this point. We use the term fairy tale so interchangeably with Disney that when I Google something about Disney fairy tales, I get things about Pocahontas. 
which Pocahontas is, wow. is not a fairy tale. Pocahontas is based that on actually a, pisses me off. Right. Pocahontas is based on a true story and we will get to that one day. But yeah. because Pocahontas is a Disney film, Pocahontas is now assumed to be a fairy tale. So it's almost this mm. weird kind of loop that happens where they're so interchangeable that they are each other. So does that make Star Wars a fairy tale? So there's a, some people would say no because they weren't created under Disney. Right? right. Disney owns them, but they aren't Disney properties. Right, right. But so then there's also the like Princess Leia is a Disney princess. Um I would say yeah. I would say no, partially because my my sort of argument would be that Disney versions, they're obviously adaptations of the fairy tales, but they're actually mm-hmm. sort of just the next logical step of what a fairy tale is. If they evolve with culture over time and the way you tell right. it evolves over time, it's actually yeah. just the next iteration of the fairy tale, especially when we start yeah. considering them basically the same thing. And you modernize it too. Like I think of like uh, Hillary Duff in a Cinderella story, another right. classic fucking movie. Exactly. We're just holding up all the nineties, two thousands renditions today. Yes. But if you think about like being able to turn some of these stories into more modern tales, I think right. that's actually, yeah, you're right. It is like a progression of the yeah. story. What's interesting to me too, is that now when we see dark versions of fairy tales, so either a movie that takes a really dark edge or something you know, people like to come in costumes and they're like, I'm Snow White, but all in black or whatever. Yeah. Like that's, steampunk Snow White. <laughs> yeah. That's actually seen as the really subversive version because mm. the, the sanitized Disney fairy tale is what we now know is the canon of it. Right. And to subvert it, you're kind of going back to these original darker themes. Yeah. That was not history. That was just me like musing to myself, sounding as if I'm very high, but that's what I've got. That's like what most of history is though, I feel like. (laughs) So you're probably good. (laughs) And then one of the things that was used sometimes as a way to define a fairy tale that I didn't talk before was the idea that a fairy tale is inherently old. So it inherently involves iterations over time. So you basically can't create a new fairy tale today. And, wow. And that's why we don't call something like Harry Potter a fairy tale. It fits a right. lot of the criteria, mm-hmm. but it's too new to be a fairy tale. There's not iterations of it over time. And, that's interesting. And that's sort of what separates the fantasy genre. Right. So then From I, like... From, but then if you, even if you think about like even maybe sci-fi is the new fairy tale. Right. So I tried to have a what is the modern version of a fairy tale or even folklore, right? Where we're right. passing these stories down. The best thing I could come up with, and this sounds so like stupid. The best thing I could come up with was creepypasta. Oh, because that's there, true. There's some definitions of fairy tale that are basically like a truthful metaphorical reflection of your culture. Yes, that's basically creepypasta. You go on the internet yeah. and it has that same game of telephone. I read it and then I tell you the story, but something has changed a little right. bit. And then you tell the story, but something has changed to fit the situation. And yes. so I'm not, creepypasta is not the same as a fairy tale, but I think there's like evolutions of how the folklore gets told. And that yeah. because of the nature of media being so permanent now, right? Yes, there were stories told and books written and now we have these movies that to so many people just are the story this is cinderella this is snow white that those aren't really evolving very much anymore you know probably in a hundred years there's not super new 
versions of that. But yeah. there are other things that are cultural stories we tell that do change yeah. over time. And so even though we can't make something today and say, this is a fairy tale that I've written now, we are right. probably doing and producing stuff today that will eventually fit the definition of a fairy tale. But that's like centuries down the line, probably. Exactly. That's really interesting. You know what's actually cool is I was just... Um, like last year or two years ago, I read a book series. Oh shit. It's called the Lunar Chronicles. Oh yeah. With like Cinder mm-hmm. and like, it was like tech version of like her as like a cyborg and yeah. like she loses her foot kind of thing. And it was like really cool. And it made me think that could be like where, because I can't imagine in another 300 years, people are going to still be talking about like Hansel and Gretel the same way that we do now, like 300 right. years or 500 years or a thousand years. Like that's so removed that's going to be like ancient. So yeah. how is it going to modernize to like today's sort of story? Yeah. And, what, and I, I, like, what technology would play in that too? Yeah. And to me, and this is conjecture, maybe it's not true, but I think most people today view fairy tales through the lens of Disney movies. The reason the yeah. history of fairy tales is interesting is because it's interesting to see that they were different than the stories we knew growing up. Right. Cinderella right, wasn't always a fairy godmother and a glass slipper and Jock and Gus Gus. And so you're like, oh shit, like she got her foot cut off and someone died and all that because we're so coming at it from yeah, her sister's eyes get fucking pecked out because right. they're all assholes. And that yeah. is so shocking because what we know is this pretty cartoon with like nice little songs in it. Right. So or you get like redemption arcs that Cinderella pulls with like giving Anastasia like a fucking yeah. baker or some shit in Cinderella too, which I hate that I know that, but, but I do. So we're true. just going to move on. Yep, you're correct. <laughs> yeah. And so I wonder in 300 years, like, is Disney still what we view them from going forward? Or is there something else where we look back and are like, man, those Disney movies people watched are weird versions of the stories we know now for another reason. Yeah. And like, how many times can you tell the same story? Right. Exactly. So hmm. that was, I don't know. Again, I got real abstract out here with modern fairy tales, but it's just an interesting concept because it changes so much over time. So we don't really know what it will mean in a hundred years. Right. Absolutely. I I actually, so I have a quote I'm going to read before we get into the fun part of conspiracy theories. Mm, Yes. From, so there's a man named Jack Zipes and he's a really prominent fairy tale scholar, basically. And so he talks. How do you get to be a fairy tale scholar? Like, is that a degree? There's three names. Like University of Phoenix fairy tale scholar. (laughs) Like, is that. There's three names that like. They wrote the books that I have here from my old course. When I Googled and saw their names, I was like, I remember these three people. It's Jack Zipes, Maria Tatar, and Bruce Bettelheim. Like, their whole lives were fairy tale scholarship, and I want to be them. Yeah, that's pretty cool. But so he has a quote talking about how fairy tale is kind of a code that we teach children um, as part of civilization, right? So it has keywords, and it has things we know, but it changes over time. Mm -hmm. And so the quote here is... Its original impulse of hope for better living conditions as it was formed in the oral tradition has not vanished in the literary tradition. Although many of the signs have been manipulated in the name of patriarchal and capitalist ideology. As long as the fairy tale continues to awaken our wonderment and project counter worlds to our present society where our yearnings and wishes may find fulfillment, it will serve a meaningful social function, not just for compensation, but for revelation. The words projected by the best of our fairy tales reveal the gaps between truth and falsehood in our immediate society and provide us with comforting counsel about how we can insert ourselves cunningly into our daily struggles to turn the course of the world's events in our favor. 
And so I just thought that was a nice kind of way to yeah. define it without defining it and the reason that people find them so compelling still. Yeah, and it like makes it like clear that they are going to probably be timeless because the right. the whole element of these tales are just human stories exactly told in a multitude of ways and i think it kind of goes back to what we were saying like before we're like yeah it's for children but like i think there is an element of learning lessons without like throughout it like don't be selfish don't be unkind don't be whatever you know what i mean i think you don't be boastful like things that i think are inherently good lessons to obviously teach children Yeah, and whether these all came from one single story that disseminated or not, it makes sense that they're in so many cultures because they're pretty universal concepts. Right, exactly. No matter how different your cultures are. So it makes sense that, you know, ancient China and current United States and 1600s Italy all have the same story being read. Yeah, because you have people who are in a state of some type of oppression and it's like you still have social lines and classes and wealth and stuff like that right yeah cool i like that um so i have what i called conspiracy theories because i i mean they're they are we're just gonna call them conspiracy theories um but this is basically where a few major stories like their historical counterparts basically so the first one is snow white and the seven dwarfs so this fairy tale is supposedly based on the tragic life of a woman named uh, Margaret von Waldeck, who was a 16th century Bavarian noblewoman. So she grew up in Germany uh, or in Bavaria. So it's like a facet of Germany. And her right. brother used these like small children to work his copper mine. Oh. And they apparently were like super deformed because of all of the physical labor that mining required. And they were like referred to as dwarves. So like people in society were like, you know, basically disparaging them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the poison apple was supposedly symbolic of how an old man would offer like tainted fruit to the workers. And then he would like feed it to children that he thought stole from them. Oh, um, yeah. You have uh, Margaret's um, stepmother who was jealous of how beautiful she was. So I guess she sent Margaret to the Brussels like court to get rid of her. And Prince Philip, the second of Spain, like, found her and like loved her. Um, and the father, the King of Spain opposed the romance and apparently dispatched, dis- dispatched these Spanish agents to murder her. And they surreptitiously, surreptitiously poisoned her. Okay. So Margaret was supposedly like a background or inspiration for Snow White. I mean, that fits. Um, definitely. You have Hansel and Gretel. This one was like really dark. So the tale of Hansel and Gretel could have also been told to keep children from wandering off, but at the same time, there was a huge famine between 1315 and 1317 uh, that like destroyed most of continental Europe and England. There was a lot of disease. There was mass death. We're like close to the Black Plague. Um, you have infanticide and cannibalism that increased exponentially because people were desperate to like survive. So they would realize that they couldn't provide for their children and they would kill them. So some parents even deserted their children or slaughtered them. Some parents also um, like sold their children because they needed to provide for like their other children. How do you um, pick? I. I don't know. I mean, it, it, it could have very well been like the oldest child goes because the oldest child can actually actively work. Yeah, true. You know? But then Hansel and Gretel, right, stumble across this home of... Um, Made of candy. This, this 
Yes, exactly. This this woman, this witch. So apparently the witch is based off of this woman named Katharina Schreiderin. Schreiderin. Um, so in the 1600s, she was like a really successful baker. And she concocted such a delicious gingerbread cookie that this jealous male baker accused her of being a witch. Because women can't do anything better than men unless right. they're fucking witches. Correct. Um, so after being driven from town, a bunch of angry neighbors hunted her down brought her back to her home and burned her to death in her own oven. Oh, yep. So that's fucking crazy. Um, and then the last one that I saw was a story of the Pied Piper. So the Pied Piper, um, apparently in 1264, there was a Pied Piper who offered to get rid of all of the rats in a Germanic village of Hamelin. And as long as the town elders gave him a considerable amount of money upon completion of this task, he would do it. So he gets rid of the rats the elders renege on their promise and they don't pay him what he is owed. And so the Piper's really pissed. So he entices children to follow him and leave the village and they never return. So some people believe like the lore that the Piper actually led them to the Mediterranean to join the children's crusade for the Holy land, which obviously was a fucking disaster. Yeah. And we probably should do an episode on that. Probably. Um, and then there was also the belief children actually peacefully were converted to, um, uh, Muslim, um, and then, or converted to Islam. Sorry, my God, I yell at my kids for that. Um, <laughs> and then there was also uh, rumors that they were just like slaughtered upon arrival. Um, but either way, they didn't return. And the Pied Piper would have never done that had he just been paid for what he was owed. Oh. Yeah. So I thought those were kind of interesting, like little blurbs of where that might have come from. Yeah. And those um, aren't mm-hmm. ones that we saw like in the 1200s. Here is right. a story. They come up later. Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, I thought they were kind of like fun sort of conspiracies where it's like, hmm, maybe this is where Snow White came from. Yeah, you can't really prove it, but maybe. Exactly. Exactly. That is exactly. Fun. That's what a conspiracy is. Yeah. <laughs> Except the couple that are true. Except the Titanic, which didn't sink. <laughs> right. The Titanic did not sink. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's fairy tales, friends. Um, yeah. I mean, we probably could have made this like a 5,000 part series, but. Yeah, there's a lot of really cool stuff out there. Yeah. So that's that's my my attempt at being a historian for the time being. You kicked ass. <laughs> you kicked ass, seriously. I literally was like so enthralled because I always liked fairy tales. I love reading. I'm a writer, so I like love this kind of shit. Yeah. And it was really cool to hear how what we understand as fairy tales today is so similar and so different from how they probably started. Right. Yeah. It's so it's really interesting that we think of them. I mean, we think of them as a certain movie for the most part, and they have this whole right. history. Yeah. But that's what I took a history of fairy tales class, basically, that was really cool and went over all this. And so I was excited to like pull out my old books that I kept from it. I love that. That's so cool. I wish I had had a class like that in, in school. That's okay. all we got for you okay. today, folks. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to What the History Podcast. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at WTHistoryPod. You're also welcome to email us at WhatTheHistoryPodcast at gmail.com with topic suggestions or questions. Please subscribe to the podcast so that upcoming episodes show up in your feed and we will talk to you soon.